It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Alice Su, the Economist Senior China Correspondent based in Taipei. And I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing Bureau Chief. In the past few weeks, the world has watched America shoot down a Chinese spy balloon, Xi Jinping shake hands with Vladimir Putin in Moscow, the CEO of TikTok go through a grilling on Capitol Hill, and China's angry response to a visit by the president of Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wen, to America. The Sino-U.S. relationship has entered a new and dangerous phase, perhaps its worst in 50 years. This week, we're looking at what this escalation means and asking what can be done to defuse tensions. We'll speak to our editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton Beddoes, who's just visited China, to get her take on the situation. This is Drum Tower. From The Economist. Alice, how are you doing? Are you feeling better? Hi, David. Thanks for asking. I'm feeling much better. Thank you. Although it's been a busy week, you know, I've been covering two trips going on by two Taiwanese presidents, the current one and the former one. One of them has gone to America and one of them has gone to China. And there is a lot of careful maneuvering around these two very political trips. Uh, What about you? How's it been in Beijing? Well, the big news in my non-work life is I can bicycle again. The doctor has given me the green light after my bust wrist, and that has just revolutionized my life. I'm back on my two wheels, so I'm a happy man. You have no cast or bandage or anything anymore? It's all good. Yeah, I'm done. Uh, Congratulations. That's great. So, David, this week we have a special guest on Drum Tower, and that is our top boss, our editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton Bedos. That's right. By the magic of radio, she's joining us from our studio in London. Zanny, welcome to Drum Tower. Thank you for having me. You've just gotten back from Beijing and you saw David there. Was he a good tour guide? Did he show you around? (laughs) David is an excellent tour guide. He put together a fabulous itinerary of meetings from, you know, breakfast till dinner every day. Diplomats, Chinese officials, scholars, business people, you name it. David knew them and uh, I got to talk to them. It was really wonderful. He was also, I have to say, a fantastically generous host who invited me and all of his colleagues to dinner at his apartment. And I can therefore attest that the cats are in good health. (laughs) Although they were trying to steal pizza at one point. They were trying to steal pizza, that is true. It is like living with small thieves, sharing your life <laughs> with cats. But they're cute furry thieves, so they get forgiven every time. So Zanny was invited for official reasons as editor-in-chief of The Economist to attend a couple of off-the-record conferences. I was lucky enough to get to go along and listen to various important people saying interesting things. But around that, you can always wrap as many meetings as Zanny will take in a day because people want to meet the editor-in-chief 
of the economist. And so the order always to the correspondence on the ground is to use the boss's visit to get to see people who are hard to see. And I can report that that works in Beijing as it does elsewhere. So, Zanny, this is the first time that you had been to China in four years. What was it like being back? What kind of differences did you see from the last time when you'd been there? So, Alice, it was both fascinating and extraordinarily sobering. It's fascinating because nothing beats being in a place. Nothing beats having in-person conversations. And I was very struck how much the country had moved. Clearly, in the four years since I was last in Beijing, Xi Jinping has cemented his position at the absolute center. It's no longer a one-party state. It is a one-person state. And again and again, that was very clear to me. What was also clear to me was just how dramatically the relationship between the United States and China has changed. When I was last in Beijing, the Trump tariffs had already been put in place. Relations were already pretty bad. But there was much discussion of, was the Trump administration a bit crazy? How long would this last? It wasn't a sense that there was a really, really deep, deep fissure between these two countries. And this time, you know, I saw it. I was very, very struck that there is a uniform view that the U.S.-China relationship is at its lowest ebb really since the early 1970s. And there was a gloom about that, gloom amongst the diplomats, gloom amongst the business people, anger on the Chinese side. We've ended up this week putting on our cover, America v. China, it's worse than you think. And that was really a direct result of this trip. I followed China very closely, but I was shocked at how this relationship has deteriorated and how dangerous it seems. One of the reasons you were there was you were invited to the China Development Forum, which is this big annual meeting put together under the auspices of the Chinese government. They fly in lots of big business leaders and opinion leaders, no diplomats. So it's very much a kind of economically focused event. And it's often full of boosters, people who've invested billions of dollars in China and who are raring to invest more. But how did you find the mood at this year's forum? And who was there? Again, David, the mood was extremely sober. It was the first in-person meeting of the China Development Forum since 2019. It's held at the government guest house, which is a rather beautiful secluded compound on the western side of Beijing. And there was sort of irony that the blossom was coming out and the surroundings were extremely tranquil. But the mood was really gloomy. And first of all, there were very, very few American CEOs there. Pretty much every major CEO you could think of was there in 2019. This time, very, very few Americans. Tim Cook was there, a few others, quite a lot of Europeans, certainly all of the big companies, and you know them all, whose businesses depend on China, European companies, German companies in particular. They were all there and they were all saying, you know, very positive things. But in the corridor, the talk was, even amongst them, of just how bad this relationship was. What would decoupling mean for their businesses? Would they have to start executing plan Bs? And I was struck, even there actually, by the sort of tone of the conversation. And people who said that they weren't sure how this relationship could be improved. It was beyond salvation, one person said. People were quoting The Guns of August, Barbara Tuckman's book about the build-up to World War I. I was really quite struck by the degree of concern. That is quite a grim picture that you're painting, Zanny. And if you had to summarize your own big takeaway or your one big thought from this trip after the time you spent there, what would it be? I guess I have two. The first is that I have always slightly wondered, sitting in London, whether David is being too gloomy, and I can now attest that he's completely right. And secondly, and I think more seriously, I came back thinking that if we manage in the coming years to avoid an outright conflict, 
between these two countries, that for me is going to be a measure of success. I take it as given now that there is going to be damage to globalization from some measure of decoupling, and hopefully that will be relatively limited. And I say this weighing my words somewhat carefully. I'm absolutely not trying to be a scaremonger, but I do think we are now on a trajectory with an internal logic on both sides that means it will be a marker of success if we avoid an outright conflict. That's, I think, the goal that we need to aim for. So, Zanny, that is quite a weighty conclusion that you've drawn, you know, that if we can manage to avoid an outright conflict between America and China in the coming years, we can consider that a success. I'm curious, how did your view of the state of this relationship change once you were in Beijing in comparison to what you thought before going? How did it compare to the views that you were hearing in London and in Washington? Do you think that the two sides, you know, the West and the Chinese side are are seeing each other clearly? So I've been in America a fair amount. I go pretty regularly. I was actually in the US the week before I went to Beijing. And I've already known that positions in the United States have hardened. The one thing that both parties can agree on in a highly polarized country is that you need to be tough on China. So that I sort of knew before I went to Beijing. What became very, very clear to me from this trip in Beijing is how positions in Beijing have hardened and how there is a sense that America is being a bully that is determined to keep China down. As a result, I've sort of realized that both sides have views that are utterly incompatible. The U.S. sees an authoritarian China that is increasingly aggressive, that is determined to build an alternative world order that is friendlier to autocrats. And the U.S. understandably wants to stop that by increasing military deterrence in Asia, by maintaining technological superiority. And it's in that context that the U.S. imposed those export controls on chips. I think it was in September last year. And Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, was very explicit. And I'm going to quote him. He said, given the foundational nature of certain technologies, such as advanced logic and memory chips, we must maintain as large of a lead as possible. Very, very clear signaling. To China, that says, America is bullying. It's determined to keep China down. The Chinese, by contrast, and this was said to us explicitly in one of our meetings, the Chinese feel that they are destined to be a big, powerful country. Therefore, they want a multipolar world and they resent what they see as America's determination to maintain its superiority in a unipolar world. And they see an America that is breaking the rules that it set up for the global order in order to maintain its supremacy. And there's a kind of increasing sense of anger, not just actually from party officials, but from the kinds of Western-educated, Western-oriented people that I have met on previous trips to Beijing. And that's one thing I was very struck with. And David, I'm keen to hear if that resonates with you. But people who did not have that sense of anger about the United States do now in Beijing I think it's right. I mean, I think the division that you hear, the debate that you hear, is whether China is strong enough to directly confront America or whether it needs to wait a bit longer before it confronts America. But that's the only real area of disagreement that I think we heard among the Chinese that we were talking to. There's no disagreement that America is bent on trying to hold China down and is not willing to share the top slot. And I think part of the problem is that in the Chinese system, Nothing sets the direction more powerfully than direct public words from the Supreme Leader Xi Jinping. And just before you landed, we had the annual meeting of parliament 
And at one of the side meetings, Xi Jinping said explicitly that Western countries led by the United States are implementing all-round containment and suppression of China. And it's unusual for any senior leader, but particularly Xi Jinping, to name America and other Western countries. And I think that's one of the reasons why you heard even Western-educated technocrats taking a hard line, because once the big guy has spoken, that's the line that everyone has to take. I think that's right, David. And I think while the two positions are very clear, very much in conflict, I do think that there is some impact from the way the mood music is set. I think the difficulty is that in the United States, quite a lot of statements are made for a domestic audience. And there is a cacophony of democracy. There always is in the United States. There are a lot of people saying things that are nowhere near government policy. But that is sort of lost in Beijing, where I think the view in Beijing is that everything happens in Washington is government policy. And there were two scenes on both sides, which I think epitomize this. President Xi went to Moscow, stood there next to Vladimir Putin. That, to an American audience, was perfect evidence of the dangers that China poses, this kind of alliance of autocracies it's trying to build. Meanwhile, the CEO of TikTok appeared in front of Congress toughly questioned for five hours by congressmen who did exude extraordinary anti-Chinese sentiment. Clips of that went absolutely viral in China and were seen as evidence of a bullying U.S. that was just absolutely both ignorant and determined to keep China down. And I think those two things happening at the same time reinforced both sides' view of the other to make a situation that is at its fundamental a very difficult one seem even more extreme. So, Zanny, I was watching those TikTok hearings, too, while you were in China, and I was really struck by just how hostile it was. Some of the committee members' questions were really over the top. There was this Republican congressman named Earl Lee Ray Carter, and for starters, he misnamed the CEO several times. Thank you, Madam Chair. Mr. Crew, welcome to the most bipartisan committee in Congress. And then it got worse. We may not always agree on how to get there, but we care about our, our national security. We care about our economy, and we sure as heck care about our children. And I don't speak for everyone, but there are those on this committee, including myself, who believe that the Chinese Communist Party is engaged in psychological warfare through TikTok to deliberately influence U.S. children. And you know, when I, I was watching that and I was just thinking the sad thing is that the American government has legitimate concerns about national security threats coming from Chinese technology, right? But when you see domestic American politics getting really riled up about being aggressive on China, and then you see these kinds of scenes, they become fodder for propaganda on the Chinese side. And they help to reinforce this idea in China that, look at this, look at this clownish behavior. Americans are just racist. They just hate us. Is that the kind of thing that you were hearing? Absolutely, Alice. That's exactly what it was. And what worries me, actually, is that we are entering the kind of full-on panto theater part of the American election cycle as we come into primary campaigns before 2024. I can only imagine just what's going to be coming across the screen because I really think that in a very polarized society, the United States now is one of the very few things that everybody can agree on is that you need to be tough on China and therefore politicians need to show how tough they are on China. And they will be saying an awful lot of very, very aggressive things in the primary campaigns. And what worries me is that clips of those kind of statements will be going viral in China and will be seen as evidence of China's view of what the United States is. The other part of the context of this you mentioned just before was the fact that we saw this split screen of the TikTok hearings, but also 
Xi Jinping in Moscow. And I thought it was really fascinating the way that the Ukraine war hung over your visit in our meetings with scholars, with diplomats, with Chinese officials, but in such a different way that for you as a European, for you as a Westerner, the Ukraine war is about this illegal war of aggression and the shock of seeing China siding with Vladimir Putin. But that just isn't how the Chinese establishment sees it. And there was this really interesting moment where this off-the-record conference asked you to give a talk on Ukraine. And it was so interesting hearing the Chinese scholars taken aback to hear you talking about your travel to Kiev to interview the president of Ukraine right at the beginning of the war in his bunker, how it reminded you of World War II, terrible conflict on European soil. And I think it's very, very rare for them to hear from someone who's making a political point, but also a kind of point about the human suffering, because there's a bloodlessness, I think, to the way that Ukraine is discussed here and a lack of belief in European agency and a kind of cynicism about European outrage. And so what struck you about the Chinese reactions to your speech, but also to the discussion about Ukraine? So it's funny you should say that. I I did feel like the perspective that is so apparent to us here, people seem genuinely surprised. And I was very struck because, you know, China always makes a big deal about the inviolability of borders and, you know, this being an absolute tenet of the post-war order. But actually, it seems to me that they view what is happening in Ukraine through an uber-realist frame of what is good for China. And it's really all about China's self-interest. And actually, several people in private conversations were completely open about that. And they said, yeah, yeah, you know, the invasion is not really a good idea and probably wasn't a great thing. But it would not be in China's interest for Vladimir Putin to be defeated because they see it through the prism of the US-China conflict. And a defeat for Russia would be a victory for the United States, for the West, and that would be bad for China. It's a very might-make-right, uber-realist view of the world. And it's something, David, that you've written about in many columns. Yeah, in China, it's always about China. Zani, several people said to us, don't underestimate the plausibility and the popularity of some of China's big foreign policy initiatives and talking points. Did you come away with a sense that the West has a plan for how to counter Xi Jinping's vision for a world order? So I think the short answer is no, we don't have that in the West. Not just on this trip, but on other trips I've taken in recent months. I was in India last year, I was in Indonesia. There is a very clear sense that the global South, for want of a better word, is much less convinced of the logic that has united the West in outrage and opposition to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Most people in the world live in countries that are agnostic or are supporting Russia. And I think one of the reasons for that, and it comes back again and again and again, is a sense from these countries that America has actually got terrible double standards. And again and again and again, you hear the word Iraq. Why was it okay to invade Iraq? And now it's not okay for Russia to have done what it's doing. There is much greater willingness to buy this argument that eastward expansion of NATO has somehow pushed Russia into doing this, and broadly a sense that America talks a noble game, but actually practices extraordinary double standards. And I've heard that before I went to Beijing. I heard it again in Beijing. And so I think the answer, David, is that there is a certain appeal to what Xi Jinping is saying amongst countries of the global south. But what I'm not sure about is whether it goes on to really liking the idea of a China-led world order. You talk to ambassadors from many of these countries, David. Do you have a sense that there is a willingness to kind of sign up for the world order that China wants? 
I think people covered it two ways. There's the China can give us stuff we need and it's a wicked world and nobody is perfect. So we'll just take what we can get. And that's a chunk of countries. But I think you're onto something that China's rhetoric is very plausible, but China's behavior is more problematic. And there we're into a test of models, right? That America's best way to compete is not just crafting clever talking points, but just being better. That's one of the things that I've come back with reinforced most powerfully. If you sort of really simplify and exaggerate, as we journalists want to do, what the elements of the American strategy are, it's one, boosting military deterrence. It's two, using economic tools to ensure that China is not predominant in the technologies of the 21st century. But the bit that is, I think, missing in terms of emphasis is doubling down on what makes America strong. One of the things that really underpins America's strength has historically been its immigration policy and its openness to immigration. It is a place that attracts the world's best and brightest. It is the place that many, many people around the world would love to go to to create a better life for themselves. I don't know. I think there are very many people who are itching to move to Beijing relative to the number that would want to move to the U.S. But yet you see right now, actually, immigration policy is at a complete standstill in the U.S. And if anything, the U.S. is becoming much more closed to foreigners. And so I felt a sense that there is a over-reliance on the punitive and tough sides of the American strategy and perhaps insufficient emphasis on really focusing on the things that will allow America to be the best version of itself and thus to succeed that way. We'll be back in a moment to discuss how a conflict between the U.S. and China might be avoided. But first, we wanted to remind you that you can read about the breakdown in the U.S.-China relationship in The Economist this week. We have a great cover story about tech decoupling, and David's Chagwan column looks at how America is viewing China. If you're a subscriber already, thank you. And if you're not, we have a free 30-day digital subscription just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash drum offer to find out more. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So Zanny, you were telling us about the importance of choosing words carefully, why words matter in the U.S.-China relationship. And I wanted to ask you how you see that in relation to Taiwan, where I am right now. We've been hearing American politicians become more pointed in the way they speak about Taiwan. And I'm talking to David and he told me, you guys heard people telling you they were frustrated that Mike Pompeo was calling to, for example, acknowledge Taiwan as a sovereign independent nation. And, you know, those are quite dangerous words to just be throwing around in regard to this place. So where do you see this going? I think on both sides, there is a, as you say, a move away, at least rhetorically, from the care that was built up around the strategic ambiguity policy that held for so many decades. And I think it's because Taiwan is changing. And as you laid out, Alice, in your excellent special report, which has really shaped my thinking about Taiwan, for decades, 
the phrase strategic ambiguity and the understandings that went along with that have papered over fundamental differences between the two sides. And as I think you get a broader relationship, which is marked much more by zero trust, by a sense that the two sides have completely incompatible goals, and for American politicians, Taiwan is the theater for many on which to show how tough they are on China. And for Chinese officials, it is the place to kind of overreact, I think. And so there's a real risk that comes from this incredibly tense relationship having a very clear flashpoint. And so Taiwan worries me because I don't yet see the caution on both sides that that would demand. And speaking of caution, we're right now in the middle of a very politically sensitive trip that is happening. The Taiwanese president, Tsai Ing-wen, is transiting through America. She is scheduled to come back and meet with the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, on April 5th. And, you know, as I've been reporting on this, I've heard a lot from the American side and the Taiwanese side about how hard they're trying to keep this low-key routine. You know, this is nothing new. This is the same as always. Tsai Ing-wen has transited six times in the past because they want to avoid escalation. And in fact, even the idea of having this meeting with Speaker McCarthy in America rather than having him come visit like Nancy Pelosi did last year, that was already a big step to try to avoid crisis and avoid escalation once again. And I'm curious, did you get a sense from Chinese interlocutors that they too are worried and are can't sleep at night over the idea that there might be a war over Taiwan and that they are taking real steps to also try and avoid that spiral into conflict? So Alice, the honest and somewhat depressing answer is no. The rhetoric was pretty aggressive. Even actually from informal conversations I was having, people were saying, and I was really shocked by this, that when Nancy Pelosi last year came, everybody in China thought the plane should be shot down and they agreed with it. And I was kind of, whoa. But having said that, I am struck that while I was in Beijing, Jake Sullivan, the U.S. national security advisor, had a call with China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, wasn't reported what was discussed, but it suggests to me that at the top, there is a recognition that this must not get out of control. And the fact, I think, that Speaker McCarthy, who at one point was talking about coming to Taiwan, was no longer doing that, that the meeting would now be in the United States, that there was clear desire not to provoke and to keep this under control. And I hope very much that that is the sentiment that prevails. If it comes to accusing America of being the party that is destroying the old status quo in Taiwan, then there's any amount of ferocity, any amount of signaling that China will not tolerate any changing of the status quo. But at the same time, a tiny kind of glimmer of hope. I think we did hear several times that war isn't their preference. They would like to do this peacefully. And Xi Jinping has maybe more time than some in the West think. So a bit of pushback against generals and admirals in American congressional hearings saying there's going to be a war in the next two, three years. I think we heard pushback against that kind of urgency. We did hear that. We heard affirmation of resolve, affirmation that Taiwan is part of China and unification is a goal. But I think you're right. There was pushback against the sense that invasion would be imminent. It was not a sense of saber rattling, but nonetheless, a clear signal as everything in China, set by the top, set by Xi Jinping and what he'd said, that this was the goal. This was what China wanted, and that was Chinese policy. And no sympathy for the idea that it's up to the people of Taiwan to decide their fate. How would you characterize the discussions about 
the other things that America and China could talk about, could cooperate, that shopping list of global public goods that could form the basis for cooperation, even as they compete in other spheres? God, I'm, I'm beginning to sound like a depressed, broken record, but my sense is that that was a shopping list. I think that's a rather good phrase that you're using there. They were subjects and areas that were trotted out. Yes, of course, it's important that from pandemic preparedness to climate change, there are areas where the world would be a better place if these two sides cooperated. But I didn't really sense in Beijing any real belief that serious cooperation there was very likely. I don't know about you, David, but my sense was much more you bully us, you kick us, you keep us down, and you want us to cooperate on all this stuff? If a giant is trying to choke you to death, and then they ask to play by sort of rules of wrestling, it's like, well, no, I'm going to fight for my life. I think that was the message that they wanted to send. But Zanny, what about the role of business? Do you think that companies, investment, trade, that is a way to help the US and China avoid conflict? Or do you think they are headed towards decoupling no matter what? So I think the answer is yes to both of those, in that I think some decoupling is already happening, some decoupling is inevitable. The consequence of export controls on high-end chips is already having ramifications, as our briefing this week explains. I think the challenge will be, given how completely symbiotically integrated these two economies are, the challenge will be to limit the scope of that decoupling. And that will determine how damaging this all is for the world economy. And there are estimates from the International Monetary Fund that range, I think, from 0.2% of world GDP to 7% of world GDP in terms of what the damage could be. And so obviously, the goal should be to minimize the amount of damage. And I also think there is a benefit to maintaining integration I'm not naive about this. A very famous book written just before the First World War, it's called The Great Illusion by Norman Angel. It said the economies of Europe are so integrated that war is impossible. And within a couple of years, he was proved wrong. So I'm not being naive here, but I do think greater economic integration does mean greater contact and does make conflict less likely. So the challenge is going to be, how do you minimize the degree of decoupling? And there are several different models, but one very popular one is localize, localize, localize. You have your China operations for the China market with a China supply chain, with China R&D, everything China focused. And what you have less of is these long supply chains. Some companies can't avoid that. You know, Apple is utterly integrated into its China supply chain. It's a huge and existential part of the company. But other ones that can essentially have a localized strategy for China I think are increasingly going to be doing that. I also wanted to ask you about the export controls that America has placed on China's semiconductor industry and advanced computing. I mean, what were you hearing about those and what is your sense of their impact? Are they going to work for America in the long run? Are they going to succeed in stopping China from reaching the level it wants to make the kinds of weapons that it wants and, and to hold China back while America moves forward to the next generation of chips? So in the short run, they're clearly having a profound impact on the upper end of the semiconductor chip area. I think they are also having an impact because America's allies have gone on board. The Dutch and the Japanese have implemented some. In the medium term, that effectiveness is time limited. What is this doing? It's spurring China's determination to innovate at home. It's going to take it longer. It won't necessarily happen very quickly. But there is an absolute determination that China will continue to innovate. And Money is being poured into 
pursuing domestic R&D, pursuing domestic innovation. And a lot of the domestic economic reform agenda is being focused on that. So, for example, we heard very clearly an argument that China needs to improve its capital markets so it can more easily build up its own financing for its own innovation. So over time, I think this approach is not as a permanent approach, but in the short term, it's definitely having an impact. How does this get better? If you're talking about trying to avoid conflict over the next 10 years, what's your prescription? for how the US and China should handle their relationship? So I think the sober but realistic answer is that it is going to be difficult because the interests on both sides are so fundamentally and diametrically opposed. It will require a maturity on both sides. It will require restraint on both sides. And it will require both sides to recognize how their actions are perceived by the other side. We have been able to do this before. There are many lazy comparisons made between today and the original Cold War, not least that in the original Cold War, there was virtually no economic relationship between the two sides. So I'm not suggesting it's a perfect parallel. But what is clear is that what was an existential rivalry between the Soviet Union and the West was managed for decades without the world descending into catastrophic conflict. And that happened in part because there were real flashpoints which scared everybody, the Cuban Missile Crisis being Exhibit A. It was partly, I think, because actors on both sides, people in charge, had vivid personal memories of what conflict was. And I think that's something that it's important for us to bear in mind. They knew what it was like. And I think it's much harder, those of us who have thankfully never been in that. There is also, I think, an insouciance that comes from not having lived through a war. But if we harness some of the seriousness and some of the lessons of that period, which are things like developing guardrails, they are maintaining contact, they are continuing to speak to each other with regular meetings. And one of the reasons I think and the relationship has got so much worse over the last few years has been because the pandemic has prevented people from meeting in person. I'm not naive enough to think that President Xi and President Biden sitting in a room together will m sort of magically solve everything. But it was very clear after they did meet in Bali and the G20 summit, there was a very clear lowering of the temperature. And of course, that was blown out of the water with Balloon Gate. But having those kind of regular dialogues, having contact, building processes for managing rivalry, for managing conflict is really important. And I think that's our best hope. And with that, I think it will be possible both to avoid conflict and to limit the damage to the globalized world economy. The Thucydides trap is not an inevitability. It is possible to get through this. Zanny, thank you so much for joining us on Drum Tower. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, David. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. So, David, I'm really struck by what Zanny said about how her views changed after she went to Beijing. And my takeaway from the conversation is just how important it is to understand clearly how the other side see things. I do feel that there is a lot of alarm as the U.S.-China relationship deteriorates. And sometimes there is an urge from people watching this happen to just say, you know, we need to go back to the old days. We need to just calm down and be friends and work together. But actually what we need to do is understand that things have changed and understand that how high the stakes are. We need to understand that these two superpowers are now really seeing each other in a, a hostile way and 
understand that that could lead to outright confrontation, if not conflict and destruction. So to me, we need clear vision. And then once we see things clearly and acknowledge that reality, we need to move forward with nuance and formulate policy and talk about how to respond to China in a careful way rather than letting this threat and this danger stoke the fires of nationalism and racism and bigotry. We need to be careful and precise as much as is possible. Clarity, but we also need honesty, right? So as Zani said, there's a logic on both sides. America doesn't see why it should allow China to become strong and dangerous with American technology. China says, you're trying to contain us, you're trying to hold us down. So you mentioned I wrote a Chaguan column this week about America's views of China. What I tried to do really was explain something big has happened. American presidents for sort of 40 years up till Barack Obama used to talk about welcoming China's rise as long as it was peaceful and didn't mess up the world's order. So it was like a conditional welcome. It's now become a selective welcome. You know, you can rise as a peaceful economic producer of stuff, but not high-end technologies that touch our national security. China doesn't see why America gets to choose which areas China succeeds in. There was a, a really interesting moment. Professor Dawei at Tsinghua University said to Zani, and he then allowed me to put it on the record for the column, every country wants to be a tiger, strong like a tiger, but America doesn't want us to be. They want us to be like a cat with our teeth pulled out, like a sort of defanged fat cat. And I think he's not wrong. Now, America would say, of course, that's what we want because we think China's dangerous. But that means that if we avoid the war that Zani's worried about, we aren't going to avoid a really tough test of strength, a contest for primacy, because no tiger chooses to be neutered. Thank you to all of you who have sent in questions for our listeners Q&A episode. There's still time to submit. So if you have a question you'd like us to answer, email us at drum at Thank you for listening to Drumta. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burl and Barkley Bram produced this episode. Sound design is by Ting Lee Lim, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.